In this week's In-Ear Insights, Happy New Year. It is 2024. We are almost a quarter of the way through this century, which is mind-boggling when you think about it. And the topic du jour, unsurprisingly, remains generative AI and all the absolutely insane year that 2023 was. Just a quick recap, we saw... OpenAI go from GPT 3.5 and ChatGPT to GPT 4 to 4V to 4V and Turbo. So three major releases within a year, including the ability for it to see as well as read. We saw Google go from BARD to BARD 2 to BARD with Gemini, although most recent benchmarks have said that Gemini is not any better than OpenAI's free ChatGPT with three, uh, GPT 3.5. We saw Anthropic go from Claude to Claude 2 to Claude 2.1 before the end of the year, having the largest context window of 200,000 tokens, although it is not great. And we saw the open source community developing some models that are absolutely mind-blowing, going from Meta's first Llama release in early 2023 to Llama 2, and then Mistral, the French company, going from nothing to Mistral 7 to to Mixtral, the mixture of experts model, which is industry-leading performance for models that you can run on your laptop, which when you think about it, you don't need a server room full of tools to, to have generative AI working for you. On the image side, we saw stable stability AI go from stable diffusion to stable diffusion XL to SDL Turbo all within a year's time, which allows for now real-time animation, which is mind-bending with video clips up to 10 seconds long. And on the regulatory side, we saw the first actual legislation regulating the use of generative AI come from the EU, the EU's AI Act, which was passed at the very, very tail end of 2023. The big provision there for marketers to pay attention to, of course, is disclosure and transparency. So Katie, given this astonishing year that we just had, what are you looking at and what are you looking forward to for the year ahead? Well, before I get into that, I just want to sort of point out that I feel like regardless of all of these advances in technology, the same issue exists. Developers do not give a hoot about version numbers. So you have GPT 3.5, GPT 4, GPT 4V, GPT 4 ABC and then 4.2, and then 6, and then 9. And it's, as someone who used to manage software engineering teams, like this drove me nuts because we would outline a plan for what the version numbers would be. And then they would do something completely different and be like, no, well, we we did all those versions. You just didn't see them. They're not public facing. So we, we went through 1 and 1.2 and 1.23, whatever. And now we're on 6. I'm like, well, wait a second. So I just want to sort of point out that as I'm looking forward to 2024, my focus is going to be on the fact that, you know, despite the new technology, the same issues exist. Um, and so I guess that's sort of a Debbie Downer way of saying that, you know, I'm not overly focused on the new tech itself. So, you know, Chris, you have generative AI covered. I don't need to hyper-focus on what's going on. If I need to know, thankfully, I'm in a position where I can just ask you as my, you know, colleague and my co-founder and my teammate, my focus needs to be on that it's going to surface 
the same issues that we've always been having with people in process, but there's this misunderstanding. So my focus for and prediction for 2024 is that there is a misunderstanding of what problems generative AI will be solving for any given team or company or individual. You know, I think I saw something that you posted about, um, you know, training algorithms. Like if you only ever interact with dog posts on Instagram, then you're going to get more dog posts. Or if you only ever, you know, cook one bread recipe, you're going to get really good at that bread recipe. I'm sort of paraphrasing now. And then I think your point was that if you continue to train generative AI on specific tasks, your generative AI is going to get really, really good at performing those tasks for you, which is totally true. But then if you look behind you and your whole kitchen is on fire, then you haven't really solved the problem. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, that was more it, that that particular post was more in relation to as people were looking at the year ahead and and what they expected to see. I was just reminding people that you, you do have you as a human being have a lot of agency as to what machines serve to you what, what content you choose to see I, I saw on threads the other day someone's complaining like there's a lot of you know this content that i don't want to see on here and i'm like then, then you're not using threads properly because i only see the stuff that i want to see i've gotten it so well trained like i want to see these 10 people and their posts as much as possible i want to see these topics as much as possible and for me it's it's a wonderful place to be because i see just the things i want but and i, I think, think that's you're proving my point though is that there's this misunderstanding that this new technology is suddenly going to solve this problem and you, the human, don't have to do anything. Oh, absolutely. That's that's 100% correct. Yeah, if you just sit back and let the machine attempt to infer based on your behavior and you're not conscious and thoughtful about how you interact with it, absolutely, it's going to be a crapshoot until... So this is interesting. This is a problem called sparsity. And sparsity refers to not having enough data to make decisions when when if you were to use a, a brand new social network and people saw this in the very early days of threads last year when you use a brand new social network there really isn't a history of what you like and what you don't like so the machine has what's called a sparsity problem. It's like i'm just going to throw a bunch of things and see what sticks because you know do you engage with any of this at all do you do you dwell you know how long do when you're thumbing through your feed do you stop on on this post or that post and it tries to guess as quickly as possible what to serve you based on limited signals so a sparse data problem and then over time as it has more data it can it can sort of fill in the blanks better but a big part of of what you are served by a machine is conditioned is primed by those early day interactions so if you if you were angrily commenting on a about a certain politician on threads in in the first you know 7 days there's going to be a long term echo sort of a shadow of those interactions because the model built essentially its best guess about you from those early days and it takes a lot of intentional work to get past that like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna you know heart and and, and love every single pitbull post that i can find and hopefully over time i see less of that animal and more of the pitbulls that we want so that's that to your point that is a people and process thing to uh, the people have to understand the process of how the machine works and build their own processes to condition the machine in in a sparse data problem if you are thinking about rolling out generative ai at your company one of the first things you have to think about from a process perspective is what is how do we address the sparsity problem early on now you can do it with things like 
you know, rich training data and, and thoughtful curated training data sets and stuff. But a lot of companies that don't know that just kind of rush in headlong and they're like, why is our, it was a Chevrolet of Watsonville just put up basically an empty uh, OpenAI uh, chat GPT endpoint. And suddenly people were using the full capabilities of the paid version of, of chat GPT on Chevrolet of Watsonville's chatbot because they, <laughs> they didn't think about how this thing worked. So it's like writing Python code for them. It's writing a, uh, contractually legally binding agreements on behalf of the dealership well and i guess that's sort of you know the when i think about you know what's coming in 2024 that's where my head goes is there's going to be more opportunity for companies like trust insights to really educate and guide the conversation and the implementations of custom GPTs and generative AI in whatever form people are looking at to make sure that they're doing that upfront work. And, you know, I mean, this is something that, you know, I am definitely a broken record at this point. Like you have to do that upfront work. You have to do your requirements gathering. You have to know why you're doing this. And that example that you just gave, Chris, is 100% why I harp on this point. And so I see more of that. I see more human error. I see more security breaches. I see more, you know, to use the technical term, oopsies uh, going public. And so I think that, you know, humans are going to continue to get more and more careless and lazy because they think the tech is going to solve that problem and automatically do it. And so, Looking ahead at the year, I think that where my focus is going to be is really trying to, you know, anticipate those things as much as I can with our clients and with our prospects and say, let us help you get ahead of, you know, a big security breach like that, you know, local Chevrolet company just had where like people are just using your shit for free and you don't even know it. It's true. And the, the Chevrolet of Watsonville example really highlights sort of that fourth quadrant in the Rumsfeld matrix, right? There's the known knowns, the known unknowns, the unknown knowns, and the unknown unknowns. And the unknown unknowns is though you don't know what you don't know. If you've never worked in generative AI or any form of AI, you don't know about the sparsity problem. And because you don't know it that it exists, you don't know to deal with it. And that can become problematic. So there are the things that you know you don't know, right? You you know that you don't know the inner mathematics of language models. That's totally fine. And it's a question of whether or not you need to know them. You, you can make that evaluation. And there's there are some things that you don't know that you know because you've forgotten or you have the institutional knowledge or you may have made a new hire, for example, and that person knows some things, but you don't know that they know those things because it, 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 across all the staff and teams we've ever worked with and Katie, we have had people who were like, I didn't know you knew that. Like, that's pretty mm -hmm. cool. Like we had this one marketing analyst who was a certified pyrotechnician who could, you know, deploy fireworks safely. I'm like, okay, that's not a skill that's going to come in super handy at the agency. But at the same time, I didn't know that we, we collectively had that knowledge within our organization, but though you don't know what you don't know is the big problem for a lot of companies in generative AI because the field is so new, because it's evol evolving so quickly, and because the risks are still unclear, because a lot of people still don't understand how these tools work. Mm -hmm. There's a big pile of you don't know what you don't know 
And as demonstrated by some of these these more glaring examples, that can bite you. Well, and I think that, again, sort of it's an opportunity for companies like Trust Insights to do that education because, Chris, I mean, I know you well enough to know that you are striving to stay on top of all of the information that's coming out about generative AI as quickly as it's coming out to, you know, do your best to be able to understand it. And so I think our responsibility then becomes, you know, helping distill down that information to what people do need to know. So do I need to understand the math behind how these things work? Probably not. But do I need to understand sort of like the bullet points high level of the risks and, you know, if I do this, then this is going to happen. Sort of all of those if-then statements, you know, with the prompts and with the software itself. And that's where I think that 2024 is going to be a big year of education, you know, through courses, through consulting, through, you know, content, through our live streams and podcasts. So when I think about, so I know you're asking the question, like, what's coming in 2024 for generative AI? But naturally, my thought is, what does that mean for Trust Insights as a whole? And that is education. And I think if I take it to that bigger picture of generative AI, it still is education. And it's there's going to be a lot of trial and error. There's going to be a lot of people experimenting. There's going to be a lot of missteps and mistakes and things that need to be you know, fixed and cleaned up all for the sake of learning it. And I think that... If you are someone who is interested in knowing more about generative AI, you just need to start experimenting with it while having that learning of what could go wrong. And I think it is the what could go wrong is where a lot of these conversations need to focus first, especially in regulatory industries, especially in companies that deal with protected health and personally identifiable information, especially in companies that deal with things like GDPR and other customer data. And I'd say that's where every company should be starting is what are the risks? What is our most sensitive information that we need to be protecting? I think it even goes beyond that level. Just, just I mean, the sensitive information, absolutely, you want to make sure that it's protected in your use of AI and you're not using it in ways you shouldn't be. But we actually, just before the holiday uh, break, added an entire module to our AI course on the EU's AI Act. But the one uh, provision I think is most cogent from that, for the average marketer who's not doing the deployment of generative AI, is the one on transparency, on disclosure. Mm-hmm. One of the, so to, to take a quick step back, because you mentioned GDPR. GDPR was the data privacy regulation that the E rolled out in 2018 that quickly became the gold standard planet-wide for how we should keep data safe. And to do business within the EU or to do business with EU citizens, you had to be GDPR compliant, even if you didn't mean to be doing business in the EU, right? So the, the Trust Insights website, for example, has to <clears throat> still meet basic compliance measures, not just because of of GDPR, but also because states like California adopted their versions of GDPR, first with CCPA and then CPRA, which took effect last year. These, so so the EU sort of led the way and everyone else copycatted off of that, you know, because, and why not? Because if you meet the most stringent standard, then meeting lesser standards is pretty easy. Mm-hmm. The EU AI Act promises to do pretty much the same thing. So the EU has planted a flag in the sand and said, this is what we think companies should and should not do with AI. And 
in the absence of other leadership, because there is an absence of leadership in the world around AI, the EU's <clears throat> version is probably going to become the gold standard again. And so whether, whether or not you are actively doing business in the EU, if EU citizens are using your services and you're using generative AI, you have to abide by it, right? You have to, you have to abide by it. So for example, with our course, our course is available globally and we have seen registrations from people within the EU. Therefore we are governed by the EU AI act, whether we want to be or not. The big mm -hmm. one that affects everyone is disclosure. You have to disclose when you are using generative AI. We've had there's a page on the Trust Insights website. I link to it every week in my own personal newsletter about why it's important to disclose these AI from US copyright perspective. But I actually have to go and amend that page to say, and it's also now required by law within the EU. If you use AI for content generation for anything that the public interacts with, you must disclose it. It's no longer optional. It's no longer a good idea. It's now required. I don't want to go too far off course. And I think maybe this is a discussion for another podcast is, you know, why, why are we disclosing use of AI when we aren't disclosing the use of like a copywriter or an editor, for example, a human copywriter, a human editor, you know, and those are just some things that I think, you know, as individuals and as companies are thinking about, you know, what do I need to know? as I'm going on this journey with generative AI, as I'm bringing it into, you know, my team, as we're using it for content, those are the questions they should be asking. And so I think a big part of 2024 is going to be that curiosity that what do I what, what questions should I even be asking? And if you're not asking questions, then you're definitely approaching it the wrong way. There's no way that any one person is going to know all of the answers. And, you know, Chris, you'll attest this. The information is changing so quickly that the questions that you're asking and answering today, you'll have to ask and answer again tomorrow and the day after and the day after that. And so I would say if, you know, you haven't set your intention yet for 2024, a good place to start is, you know, be curious. Exactly. From a technological perspective, I think there's going to be two big, well, there's going to be a bunch of big things this year, but a couple of the ones that I think are important. One, today's models that claim to be multimodal kind of are, but kind of aren't. Their, their performance definitely indicates that they're kind of a mixed bag at this point. And Can you step back and define multimodal models? So a multimodal model is a model which you chat with, but you can give it an image and say, hey, Describe what you see in this image. That would be an example. Uh, or you could upload an audio file and say, what do you hear? Uh, or you could upload a video and say, what do you see? And on the flip side, it would there are also things where you can talk to a, a you know chat with a model and say, hey, make me a picture of, of a chicken wearing a, 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 a wintertime hat and a red scarf. And the model should come up with something that looks you know, like this. Uh, whether it actually does or not, we'll find out. However, the models that we have these days appear to be ensembles they don't appear to be truly native like so and the best way you can see this is if you use chat gpt and the dolly uh, extension within it you'll give it an of instructions like make me a passenger car driving down the highway the four you know four people singing right and it puts five people on the car you're like no 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 four people not five and and it really it just it can't because it can't see what it's creating it can only create prompts that it passes on to its engine and then gives back results and it becomes very clear that it has no idea 
what it's creating because it's not a true multimodal model. It's an ensemble. I'll, um, I'll, I just want to stop you there for one second. I apologize. But like, I don't know why the thought of it can't see what it's creating just blew my mind. And it's, you know, I think we take that for granted, you know, and sort of this, again, this goes into the education part of what generative AI can and can't do. Because, you know, you said there are some models that can see things and some that can hear things, but that doesn't mean that when you say create a chicken with a red and a hat and all these things, the model itself doesn't then sit back and go, yeah, that is what I understand red to be, or that is what I understand a chicken to be. Let me just tweak that a little bit and make it a little bit more chickeny, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's just, I think that, the limitations of any of these things will forever exist, but it's really just understanding what that actually means. And so I just wanted to highlight that statement that you just made that it can't see what it's creating the same way that you or I as humans can see and understand. I think that's so important for users of these tools to really wrap their heads around. It's a difficult concept to wrap your head around because it, feels like it can see and do so many things but it's really just algorithms yeah it, it's all math at the end of the day these things are just prediction engines and in a multimodal environment it's not another form of media it's not another sense it is actually computationally very very different and again this is something i spent a lot of time on the break you know reading about you know, for the scientific papers about what's going on under the hood and why these multimodal models are struggling so much and it turns out it's because there are not clear relationships between what you see and the language you use to describe them. Their uh, language itself is inherently ambiguous, right? If I did not describe this and I just held it up, hey, your first reaction is, what the hell? Why do you have a plastic chicken? <laughs> exactly. And, and B, there's so many different ways you could describe this mm -hmm. that are equally correct, but are ambiguous, right? And when visual models are trained, they're typically trained on an image plus a caption. And so mm -hmm. it, for something like this, this is a product. So it probably, a model that's been trained probably has the product caption from a, a store's catalog describing, which is not an accurate way of describing the whole thing. It's a very short snippet of, of text saying, you know, buy sure. this thing for $24.99 or whatever. And so and this is probably a topic, like you said, for another podcast mm -hmm. entirely about the mechanics of these different models. But we're trying to bring together two things that don't really go together. It's one of the reasons why generative AI has so far has done a really, really poor job of constructing music because music and language are not the same thing. And music actually predates language in our brains. And because they're so different, these models can't blend them together well. So a big part of 2024 looking ahead is we're going to start understanding more of the complexities of how these models can and can't work together. The big technological thing to keep that I'm keeping my eye on is mixture of experts. So at the end of last year, the French company Mistral released their model Mixtral, which is a, a mixture of experts. And the best way I can describe this is instead of a kitchen where there's one head chef who's really good, like a Gordon Ramsay, just doing everything, very expensive, very talented, but one chef, you have sort of a head chef and a bunch of sous chefs, all of whom are not necessarily great. They're like kind of okay, you know, B, B player chefs, but there's eight of them in the kitchen. And under the direction of the head chef, they can each do, they each have a specialization. Like one guy can chop, the other guy uses the blender and so on and so forth. He's really good at the blender, but can't do anything else. Do not let him near the dishwasher. Um, 
And in the in this mixture of extras model, you have eight chefs working in the kitchen instead of one. Now, obviously, it has to be a bigger kitchen, but you can get a lot more done with eight chefs in the kitchen than you can with one because of the nature of multitasking. That this architecture came out last year in production. It's been, actually been around theoretically since 1991, but it came in production last year, and that model has topped the charts of so many different benchmarks. It beats Google's new model, which you're like. How did that happen? <laughs> right? <laughs> Google, what are you doing over there? And it comes close on several tasks to OpenAI's paid model and it exceeds OpenAI's free model. We're going to see this architecture become sort of the standard for a lot of the open source models and for companies that are looking to deploy a highly capable model within their walls where they where you absolutely positively cannot let data go outside your walls for any reason, like protected health information. This will be the architecture that these companies will use. So that's an, another big one to keep an eye on this year. What I find really interesting. So you just described, you know, you have one head chef who does it all or, you know, a head chef with a team of people that it de that they delegate to. And what I'm really excited about, this is sort of more of like my own personal thing for 2020 is to really see you wrap your head around how these architectures are all borrowed from organizational behavior because what you just described are the team structures that we used to have and why it was so much more efficient to have a team of 10 with a combination of specialists and generalists versus just you doing everything and you know, I'm wholeheartedly not saying this to pick on you, but one of the things that you've always openly said is that, you know, you sort of struggle with the whole human team management interaction. And what I'm seeing is that individuals who are more technically minded, you know, technically focused like yourself, who focus less on the human side of things are now starting to see and understand where those parallels are, you know, with like an organization with like a matrix organization, for example, because that's basically what you just described. And I'm like, oh, well, yeah, that's been around forever. It's been around longer since 1991. But in a technical architecture, I can understand where you're like, oh, this makes so much sense. So now it almost opens the door to different conversations where you may have been struggling with like, how do I relate to my data scientist? Well, now you have terms that you can put it in that they will be more able to understand. But like, if you put it in terms of a, you know, mixtural model, if I'm getting that correct, then you can say, imagine that our team is structured like a mixtural model. And they're like, oh my gosh, I get it now. That because it's, you're sort of meeting them where they are. And so for, people managers like myself, I feel like it opens up a whole new vocabulary, a whole new language that yes, I need to learn. But it gives me even more tools to how can I relate to my more technical resources. It's funny you mentioned that because I went the opposite way and said, this teaches me as a technical person, how much more quickly I can replace the humans. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to happen. I'm sorry, sir. <laughs> we took away different messages from that, <laughs> we, from well and you know if you and i were exactly the same this would not work no this would this would not <laughs> um 
The other thing I think to keep in mind this year, this will be the this is the going to be the year I think of AI mistakes. I, I think it will be the year where people people in 2023 were still just trying to wrap their heads around the thing. Like, what is this thing? And there's still a lot of people who, who are, are in that boat. And if you are in that boat, there's a course here that you can take. This year, I think there'll be a lot more deployment, cautious and incautious deployment of AI. And we'll see more people doing things well and doing things really badly. Mm -hmm. The, in the USA, I think the 2024 presidential election cycle will really highlight the use and abuse of AI, all the different ways that it can be used for good and ill that we haven't anticipated yet. But I also see some very interesting things happening. There is a worldwide race for AI supremacy, if you will. Um, and we're seeing this especially in the open source models, like which nations are capable of releasing models that are best in class performance. China has a what they claim is a mixture of experts multimodal model, which would not surprise me. That's a good architecture for that. Um, they've not released the model yet, but I suspect they will. France, uh, France was actually instrumental in negotiating certain ways parts of the EU AI Act because they wanted to give advantage to their own native companies about it. Mistral being the, the, the leader in the marketplace right, right now. And so I think this will be the year also of countries racing ahead to try and enable AI as best as they can so that they can they, they can attract talent, attract investment. Japan has made some changes to its laws to attract talent. South Korea just opened up a digital nomad visa program where you can stay for up to two years as a digital nomad. They're specifically looking for people no surprise, in the field of AI. So there is a worldwide race now for talent that this year is probably going to be very, very hot. So uh, if you're thinking in your own career about how what your career looks like, one of the areas to think about is how, how will your career be affected by generative AI? And can mm -hmm. you be an early adopter? Whatever your industry is, uh, can you be an early adopter to, to seize that advantage while it lasts? Well, I think that goes back to this year is all about education. So it's educating others, educating yourself, you know, finding your own process for staying up to date on things, figuring out what it is that you absolutely need to know and focusing on those things, you know, working with companies like Trust Insights to fill in the blanks on everything else. So I think, you know, it'll be really interesting, especially since when we had this conversation at this time last year, it was a very different conversation. We were focused on the rollout of Google Analytics 4. We were focused on, so yes, OpenAI had launched. It had launched around like October or November of 2022. Uh, so it was still newer in the conversation, but it was starting to pick up. But I don't think we had really fully anticipated how much it was going to dominate the conversation and really change pretty much everything the way that we were approaching it and what we had to think about in terms of you know services and courses and content and education and really just focus and so i'm i'm taking the the conversation that we're having now a bit with a grain of salt because things change so quickly because there are so many things that we can't anticipate and so you know for people who are interested in implementing artificial intelligence. Here's the good news. The foundational structure of how you implement pretty much any new technology, that's not going to change. And that's something that, you know, we, you and I, Chris, have really honed in. And, you know, I would say, like, 
are experts in that sort of foundational okay you want to do this here's here's what you need to do oh you want to do this over here instead great you still need to take the same steps so i feel very confident in that regardless of the context of what's happening in the industry we've really focused on those foundational pieces and i think that people who are nervous going into this year of things are going to change so quickly go back to your roots go back to the foundations and make sure that those pieces are rock solid because then you'll be prepared for whatever comes regardless of you know what it is there will still be a learning curve and an education to whatever the new context is but the foundational pieces shouldn't have to change yeah that's that is generally true and what's interesting too is people have forgotten we talked about this at the end of last year people have forgotten that the two things really define your success in generative ai one is the quality and quantity of your ideas right and that's a people thing that's not a that is not a, a machine thing because the machines are only as creative as what you bring to them and the second thing that's will that sets apart success or failure with generative ai is the quality of your data right because all of the the real value the real advantage that generative ai brings comes from your data like the models can do great stuff with generic data right you can go to chat gpt and say let's write a blog post about this or that but the value like real value unlocks come from your data or the data that you're that you're working with just this morning i was doing some reporting for a client i took a de-identified data set from the client and put it into chat gpt it said okay write a summary of this data for the, you know with an executive summary and it's a very capable job now the prompt for this is like now like three and a half pages long because there's very specialized um components to the prompt to make it work really well that comes from our data that comes from our knowledge base and so if you gave that same data set to somebody else they would get a different less probably less good result because they don't have that specific extra that makes the machine work better again this is all there's a, there's a whole technical th term for this called latent space optimization and the easiest way to think about it is if you have a kitchen you also have it probably a pantry and in that pantry is all your supplies all your stuff the quality and quantity of what's in that pantry dictates what the kitchen can produce because there's only so much room in the kitchen and so if your your pantry is a disorganized hot mess guess what your kitchen's going to produce less optimally if on the other hand your pantry is well organized everything is fresh and clean and well labeled and all that stuff your your kitchen's going to have a much easier time operating and that's what will set apart yeah people who people and companies who are skilled with generative ai people are not because the, the table minimum has been met like hey write me a blog post about that. that's that's done now it's who who has advantages going to be whose pantry is in the best order and that again is people in process not platform and i feel like we've sort of now come around full circle of you know new tech doesn't solve old problems if you have poor data quality if your data is unorganized if you don't really know what you want to do with the data generative ai isn't going to fix those problems for you you know if you're standing up google analytics and you have poor data quality and sort of things are a mess google analytics isn't going to fix that for you if you're really curious about how you can improve your seo but your website metrics are a mess seo tools aren't going to fix that for you and so i think that sort of to sort of wrap this up what i'm looking toward the most in 2024 is helping people 
get out of their own way by helping them resolve the people in process so that regardless of the platform, they feel ready and confident. Yep. And I'll just be over here trying to, to uh, take over the world. So <laughs> you got to get through me first, sir. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Fair enough. If you have some thoughts about how you will be looking at 2024 and what's on your docket, or you have questions that you want to discuss, like, hey, maybe we're not sure how to be tackling 2024, pop by our free Slack group. Go to trustinsights.ai slash analytics for marketers, where you and over 3,000 other marketers are asking and answering each other's questions every single day. And wherever it is you watch or listen to the show, if there's a channel you'd rather have it on instead, go to trustinsights.ai slash TI podcast, where you can find our show on most major channels. And when you're on the channel of your choice, if you could leave us a rating and a review, that'd be great. It helps to share the show. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk to you next time.